welcome back to episode two. Episode two of Symphony Podcastique. That's I'm honest. Caleb. And I'm Emma. And today we're gonna talk about Beethoven's odd symphonies. Minus nine. Minus nine. She's a special one. She's special and she deserves her own whole episode, so we're gonna And do that we're later. performing it later this yeah, year. Same you was doing yeah. it later this year. Um, so we'll get to we'll get to nine later, but today is gonna be one, three, five, and seven. Yeah, I do our best to cover all of them. Hey, Caleb. Yeah. Why did Beethoven have trouble finding a music teacher? Why did Beethoven have trouble finding a music teacher, Emma? Because his teacher was Haydn. Oh God. <laughs> should have seen that coming. Yeah, you should have. Yeah. I'm honestly shocked that you did it. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, um, let's start with, let's start with the bay. Okay, yeah, let's, let's just <laughs> jump right in with that, with that underway. Um, yeah, let's jump right in. So, for the friends out there who might not be super acquainted with all of Beethoven symphonies, um, Let's we'll just there, start with basic Beethoven. Yeah, there it, tends though, to be yeah, definitely. Well, well, there tends to be a certain like in the music world, I would say, a general stereotype mm. that the odd symphonies are the superior symphonies. More attractive to the human ear. They're better. <laughs> yes. is what people tend to say. Mm-hmm. And whether that whether or not that may be the case is something we will definitely talk about at oh. length. Absolutely. Today. We'll have a continuation of, of sort of this yes. Beethoven series. So we'll, we'll talk about the evens and then what's special about that as well. Yes. But today we're talking about the odds. Today's gonna be odds. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Beethoven is such a more interesting composer, even than people like to talk about in music history classes. Oh, entirely so. And is one of the many reasons why I think that the lines of these dumb eras that are people are forced to learn when they're growing up in music in very basic music history classes like they have to learn these eras and Beethoven is one of these composers that I think things just start to break down and you you can't like what is he classical is he romantic it's like he's Beethoven he's Beethoven but um there is definitely one thing that I definitely want to mention to people for this episode mm-hmm. and because I guess, I guess probably the first thing that people know about Beethoven is the fact that he went deaf. Well, yeah. I think that like if there's one fact about about composers that they would know if it were Beethoven, it's the it's the lack yes. of hearing. The lack for of hearing Beethoven. thing tends yeah. to be like a st- oh he was the deaf one. He yeah. Was, yeah. Um, and maybe like angry boy. Like, yeah. He's like, he was like yeah. angry and like oh there was a dog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. I would like to say, for the record, mm-hmm. for all of you listeners out there, that although, yes, it is very impressive that Beethoven was deaf, it didn't really make a huge difference for, com- for the composer, because he said himself that it would be ideal to compose never at a piano. Yeah. And Beethoven, although he was originally known as, in world, as a world-class improvisator and pianist in Vienna, he stormed onto the scene in the 1790s Mm. as this young hotshot pianist. He could compose in his head, and he could simply audiate notes in his mind and use it. It's something that a lot of people don't think about when they're like, oh, he was deaf, he was the deaf composer. It's like, 
cool. Like, <laughs> there but it's are not ways something to that, get around it's like, that. But I think that something that gets overshadowed by that is that all the things in these works that even were written, that thing like in Symphony Number no. 1, which we can dive into soon, is yeah. talk about like the little things that he wrote that were already subverting norms and put him well ahead, a generation ahead of most of the composers at the time, mm-hmm. that people don't tend to think about at first glance. Sure. So it's like, oh, he was deaf, how crazy, how cool. Yeah. Um, well, also, like, like Caleb and I actually had the opportunity to visit, um, when we were in Vienna, Heiligenstadt, yes. um, which was his home for a very, very large chunk of his life. Um, and the Heiligenstadt originally was sort of this area for Beethoven to get away from the, the busyness of suburb. Vienna. Yeah, it was yeah. a suburb. A, a quieter place. Yeah. Not that that mattered necessarily going into the future. Womp. But, um... But, oh, like... <laughs> Did you just but, womp Beethoven's deafness? Look, okay. Um, he couldn't hear that. Um, uh, but... More into sort of the deafness, like a lot of what Heiligenstadt had to offer in in describing his life were you know ways that he worked yeah. around the deafness, and there was that really really cool um, like sound wave sort of conductor. Oh yeah, yeah. That like vibrated when you put it. He would originally put it on his teeth. Yeah. Um, and as non-sanitary as that was for museum goers, they had to put it sort of just on like the top of our forehead, but yeah. it was actually very, very cool. So he could, he could put something on his head and it would, it would resonate and then he would be able to hear it within his own mind, which mm-hmm. is just really fascinating. But the Heiligenstadt, what people definitely also probably know about Beethoven is that he wrote the, the all-famous Heiligenstadt Testament. Mm-hmm. When he accepted that he was going deaf, he wrote yeah. this letter to his brothers that he never sent, um, and it was only discovered, I believe, after he died, Yes, um, that was entailing his his whole struggle with losing his hearing and how it's the sense that he under, he thinks that, of course, he should have the best ability in and he's so heartbroken and doesn't know what to do and, and contemplates killing himself. Um, but ever the romantic says that he must forge on yeah. so he can give the world what he needs to give it. Yeah. Because he's not done yet. Because no. he's Beethoven and he's a badass. Oh, yes. And there's, oh, there's, oh, there's so many great Beethoven quotes that we could definitely bring up in many episodes involving Beethoven oh, in the yeah. future. But I think the best, no, well, there's so many. There's but so the one many. that I always think I've about. I've got some good ones coming up <laughs> some symphonies later. Is the, um, the one where uh, some prince was, was, being angry, being mean to him or criticizing him for some reason, and he goes, there will be princes past you and before you, but there is only one Beethoven. And yeah, just exactly. Like, he knew yeah. what he was doing, and he knew no. that he was pushing the boundaries. Oh, he responded but... to his critics, too. Oh, yeah. He straight up just, like, went at his critics, and honestly, like, high queen, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my God. But the my favorite thing out of Heiligenstadt was definitely the, um, there was a small exhibit where there was a little keyboard that displayed yes. his his hearing. Because, oh, I don't know, for some reason, at least when I was growing up, I thought, that, like, oh, Beethoven went deaf. And then, like, it was gone. Like, one day like, he woke up day, and like, it was just like, oh, amazing. yeah. I don't know why. For some reason, when I grew up, as a kid, I was like, oh, he just went deaf. No. But it was this whole, it, even, you know, he could still hear up until the point when he, yeah. like, almost when he wrote the Ninth Symphony. But it was just, it had become... This warbling of nothing, this wash of yeah. sound, and it was just so tragic to hear this this example that the museum could replicate. 
how it would have sounded to him at the how music his own music would have sounded at yeah. like 1803 and 1805 and 1809 and 1827 and by then it was really just this warble of ode to joy and it was just heartbreaking yeah. um but anyways we should probably dig in to one more thing okay, about, please, about go ahead. so born in bonn yes oh bonn. good yeah, we should, yeah. yeah yes this is good um but the thing is uh born 1770 yeah 1770 yes. December um I liked so he apparently was baptized on the 17th no one really knows when he was born because he was baptized on the 17th it's like likely that he was born the day before but uh -huh. my birthday is December 13th so I like to think that he was born <laughs> on the 13th so I tell people I have the same birthday as Beethoven oh that's pretty good yeah yeah it's all right, I think yeah, it's I'll, justifiable. I think that's justifiable. If he was, I mean, if he was Jewish, it would have been definitely the week before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think they live outside for now. <laughs> yes. You can claim that. That's, that's within oh, your rights, sick. I think. Good. Um, okay. So, let's start with yeah, Bon. Yeah, Bon. And, and he, like, struggled as he was growing up, getting into life towards Vienna, where he would, um... He really, his father especially wanted him to be the next Mozart. Oh, his father was like, super bad. him abusively to be yeah. this prodigy so, that he would be, but. Yes. Needless to say, he was a little troubled. Yes. Um, but he got to Vienna and as Emma so punningly stated earlier, studied a bit with Haydn. Um, only for a little bit though, because I didn't, didn't really, they didn't <laughs> no, get along very well. They didn't click. Um, they didn't click, but he studied with a couple other people and got onto the scene as this amazing pianist. Yeah. Um, and premiered his first symphony in 1801, I believe. Um, um uh, actually 1800. Is it, oh no, I'm yeah. sorry, yes, 1800. April 2nd. Thank you, April 2nd, 1800. Um, and, um, well, how do I put this? So... I like to think that, well, I like to think, but also, like, a bunch of people also think this, is that the one is definitely an homage to Haydn and, and Mozart, in a way. Definitely. He's very much, he very much tries to be that yeah. world of the Haydn-Mozartian kind of composer, but my favorite, it, it's so, it's so great, because I think it's one of the first times that a symphony of four movements in this very typical Haydn-esque symphony style yeah. doesn't start with a ba-ba, yeah. we're in C major. No. And it's, we don't said scrapping that. He's a scrap like... that. And I encourage people to go, go and listen to it. And uh, it's this fabulous mm -hmm. opening intro of overlapping secondary dominant chords in the winds, of all things. It's mm -hmm. actually, the strings are all pizzicato, and they're like, they just poop, and then they're out, and the winds hold this this chord that is not C major, and it's actually the five of four in C major going to four, and it's this whole overlapping cadence, and it's just like, totally! Well, yeah, Beethoven of... comes into the scene, and he says, I'm going to write this classical symphony, but I'm going to use my marks of Beethoven with all right. my Sforzandi and all of my just like right. independent lines of the winds. It's, it's really, it's really brilliant. And yeah. it's, well, it's, oh, I think from what I could find is the, although critics tend to look on the first symphony very well later on yes. in Beethoven's life. Yeah. Initially, especially because the music critic world was actually really young at the time yes. in 1800. 
the thing that I could find most was that the big complaint was that they used the winds too much. Well, they also, <laughs> like, Heike thought it was, like, a joke. Yeah. Because, like, they were like, oh, yeah, like, these symphonies are supposed to be, like, lighthearted and fun, but also, like, like, there's only so far we can go. Like, this right. almost is comical. It, <laughs> like, it really is. Yeah. So it was, it was a medium reception to the first symphony. It's very, very typical. I personally have a really soft spot for the first symphony, um, just because, you know, having played it and having done it once before mm -hmm. and or, or conducting it once before and it's it's got a lot of gems in it that really are it's it's worth playing it's one of those pieces that a lot of people they don't yeah. it doesn't get get quite as much credence yeah. as three or five especially or especially <laughs> seven. Oh, we'll get to her later oh boy but like also the first one is is um we're still at the minuet territory we're not in the scared so well yet. that's interesting you say that because the third movement in particular it it isn't. It isn't really a minuet. It's structured like a minuet in trio, yes. and it, it is. But he wasn't Beethoven enough to be like he, this is a scherzo. This now. is the thing where Beethoven, <laughs> Beethoven develops through these symphonies the new form of third movements, which is the scherzo, which yeah. again, which like comes to its perfect Peak. convalescence in the ninth. But <laughs> yes. Um, but still, it's he. You can already even in the first symphony, like you start to see these. These really like these hints, these little Easter eggs of what he's gonna become, and especially like you said, it's like he uses Fortando's like nobody's business, yeah. and it really freaked the people out. <laughs> they were like, ah! They were, <laughs> they were like, oh my god, it's so percussive because nobody had really used percussive motifs before. <laughs> yeah, they were very judicious with crescendos. Exactly. <laughs> like, it was all forte piano, and he was like, oh, what if we add another F? <laughs> and and so. He, it, it, like, really, like, people were shocked, especially when you get to three. Like, there's even more. Mm -hmm. But it's already starting in one, where you have this, it's very percussive, and he very, very much, like, he wanted to get the extremes out of an orchestra, like, you hadn't heard them before. And this is one of the reasons why, <laughs> for a fun fact, Beethoven forced a reinvention of the piano. Excuse me? So when Beethoven <laughs> would be in his sordid study his his place was always known for being like completely disheveled and like just a mess everywhere right yeah especially as he got older through his deafness he just like didn't care and he was just like pfft. it was just food and defecation everywhere and he would just have paper just... he said i've lived a life and, i'm ready really and so but <laughs> he broke his pianos Oh yeah, because he would. Because he would he bang would... so hard. <laughs> he would literally bang so hard on the ends, the extremes of the pianos, that he would break them, and they had to invent a new one. Yeah. And it, so it's. It's a part of me. Factory workers are probably like, "Oh man, Beethoven's at it again!" Oh, <laughs> like, oh man. It's. I mean, oh man. I just. I respect anybody who worked for Beethoven in their lives. There's, well, I'll talk about one of the secretaries later. I have a well, there's whole a whole. Quote. Oh my gosh! So one, one is very. It's a very modestly good symphony, and one of these things we talked about briefly last week about tempos in in Mozart's symphonies or Mozart's operas. Mm. It's something that comes around, but in, in from a different angle with Beethoven's music, and that is the subject of the metronome. Oh well, yes. And it's one of these crazy debates that I had a lot when I was in Vienna yeah. studying at this conducting institute and it it's this fascinating debate because 
for many people, we seem to take the metronome for granted these days, mm-hmm. as it is now on all of our phones. Yes. And it's just at a moment's notice, we can get any beat we need, and yeah. it doesn't matter. And you can internalize beats for sure, but something that's standardized didn't exist until the 1820s. Mm-hmm. So for Mozart, everything was just proportionate to each to itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for Beethoven, he wrote all this music, and then in the middle of his life, he dis- this invention was given to him, and he loved it. Like, yeah. really, really got into it. Well, he made a good friend. He made a good friend. Yeah. Which he didn't have many of. No. But he, like, well, he went back, and, and then he went to his, all of his other pieces, and then put all these old markings in. So there's this huge debate, and there's, this, there's just a spectacular variance of Beethoven Tempi, of te- of just like not to not to it's a harp, not to harp on our centennial boy Bernstein but oh harp away oh man his tempos are so so <laughs> slow it just for so, especially the slow movements oh no and the, it's yeah just, and and at the end of the day like things have been actually gave us a number on a metronome to test. And the problem with that number is typically that it's just impossible <laughs> to play. Yes. And it's this thing where even like in the eight symphonies we'll talk about later, like the Philharmonic played last year, mm-hmm. and the last movement is notoriously impossible to play because he gives yes. the beat as a whole note. Yeah, no, he's and it's that person. And it's impossible to play. It's, yeah. it's almost impossible to play at, yeah. at Beethoven's tempo, but it's this mm-hmm. thing where it's, do you take, and some people like, I love this, because sometimes conductors make their whole like, thing, like they are a Beethoven tempo conductor, like <laughs> they, their entire life Stamp of they approval. aspire yeah. to like, doing Beethoven's work by its truest form. I wish y'all could see Caleb's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's admirable, and I like it, and then, the, but then there's a question of just fe- general feasibility and like, do you have the time? Can you put in the effort to really get it that fast? Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. Um, it just depends on the orchestra. But like Beethoven's second movement for the first symphony is this really nice, dun, ba, dun, dun, da, dun, dun, da, and it's it can be so ta- it can be so often taken that this like. Bum, ba, dun, bum, ba, dun, it's really nice and really beautiful, but it's not, and it's not like a real Andante thing, and it's just, mm-hmm. oh, it's crazy. I, I just, mm-hmm. I find it's, I find it's one of very interesting to think about, um, and something we can definitely touch on each of these symphonies, because there's just, there's, it happens everywhere. Oh, yeah, like, but, yeah. So, no, go ahead, you said you had... <laughs> so... Well, it like if we can transition to the third now, I think they, yeah, it happens definitely. in the third, obviously. But totally. so the third has my favorite historical backstory. Please let me pull up my notes. I love the historical backstory. So Beethoven's third symphony, the Eroica. This is during his heroic period, of course. Um, and um, well, let's say for a. a good old portion of his life, Beethoven idolized Napoleon Bonaparte, um, and, and sort of his anti-monarchal context. And this was, um, 
a big part of his life. He actually really, really admired Napoleon Bonaparte. And so much so that he was going to dedicate his third symphony, and he did, to Napoleon Bonaparte until... <laughs> until Napoleon Bonaparte declared himself emperor. When he said that he was, that he was declaring himself the emperor, Beethoven straight up went into a rage and ripped out the front page slash scratched out Napoleon Bonaparte's name from the score. I have a quote from Beethoven's secretary, oh, yeah. Ferdinand Ries, about it, and it's one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> so it goes, quote, I was the first to tell him the news that Bonaparte had declared himself emperor, whereupon he broke into a rage and exclaimed, quote, so he is no more than a common mortal. Now, <laughs> now too, he will tread underfoot all the rights of man, indulge only his ambition. Now he will think himself superior to all men, become a tyrant. Then Beethoven went into the table, seized the top of the title page, tore it in half, and threw it on the floor. Yeah, that sounds like Beethoven. The page had to be recopied, and it was only now that the symphony received the title... Zinfonia Eroica. <laughs> Unclipped. It's fantastic. It, it, I think you can totally picture that happening, too, because... He apparently, like, onto the table, like, jumped up. For our viewers, Emma just left <laughs> up from her chair. Like, he seized that page. Yeah. He yeeted that page. He said, yeet. Like, <laughs> I... I have so much respect for that moment. He, you know, it's, it's interesting because Beethoven, there's all this debate now about what Beethoven's music was trying to represent, especially in something like Eroica. Yeah. And it's whether it's this thing where did he aspire for the rising up of the common man? Or did he aspire to just more internationalist ideas about just rights in general? Because all of his patrons, all of his life, were royalty. They were Austrian nobles, Prince yeah. Winchowski and Prince, like all these yeah. families were. They were the ones patronizing and paying him to write music. <laughs> yeah, and so like, and he's like for the people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, for the people. people? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of these things where it's it, it's debated a lot, and also mm -hmm. in five too. We can get to that. Yes, but three, it's it's really where that starts to mm -hmm. really come to the fore. Yeah, because it's in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah. But also with 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 three, you already know what's about to go down when you start with those thick E flat major chords <laughs> at the beginning. So, <laughs> you already it's, know. So it's it's one of those things well, personally, this is something that I will maintain throughout as long as this podcast goes, <laughs> hopefully forever. E flat best key. You are I will no. fight. I will fight anyone. <laughs> Any time of day, you can... I don't even care. Caleb's ready to meet y'all behind the bleachers. I will, I will fight it out. E-flat, best key. It is the best key. There are, all the best pieces are in E-flat. For example, Eroica, E-flat. Mahler 8, E-flat. E Magic Flute, E-flat. E I could go on. There are many pieces. It's all all the best all the best pieces. This episode suddenly just turns into an E flat episode. <laughs> I we should definitely do one. 
<laughs> and then, you know, I'll keep convinced, trying to convince you. It's it, no, I, I just not disagree the contour with you. E flat major, the harmony. It's just it it sits really well in my ear, and I prefer E flat major to, to really that, any other yeah. key. Mm-hmm. Um, and this symphony is just it's really a masterpiece, and it start and it really breaks down another convention of the, of the what is generally deemed a classical period of mm-hmm. uh, of a generally short symphony <laughs> because. <laughs> This boy's long. No, he's and yeah. Aerobica's first movement is notoriously long because I think it's about oh my gosh, fifteen minutes at least. Well, then you have the fourth movement. Depends with the variations. Well, yeah, and this is also one of the first times that it's not, and it's I, it's not the first time in a symphony that a theme of variations is used, but in a fourth movement, which is typically a rondo form, uh-huh. um, you have this just this awesome but like beautifully simple theme mm-hmm. for it and it's just it's literally bum 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 and that's that's literally it and you can almost i i like to think about beethoven just like sitting down at the piano and just been like just plunking out with a single finger <laughs> and then just going to work. Or just like hearing one of his students play it and then just be like, oh, let me let me play with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was just like this, this crazy improviser. Yeah. Um, and it it's just, it's a really magnificent use of theme of variation that doesn't really get, it hadn't gotten to that real point in the symphonic setting yet. Um, and three, so like between the first movement, the first movement expanding that and then the fourth movement expanding like using that and you get to this the second movement too, which is this really somber funeral, funeral march, which what I was about to talk to about the the tempo. Yeah, well, <laughs> when I mean, we were on the a tempo. Perfect example of tempo. Because people, you know, you hear funeral march and you think like funeral march. You think funeral march. Yeah. The thing is, like, I don't feel like this funeral. Like, like Beethoven wrote this funeral march to sort of make it like a not like a happy event, but like it's not supposed to be dragging right and like, it's very easy to just it like, has a very dotted rhythm in yeah. it it's very easy to get very slow yeah very quick yeah so i think people hear this and and they're like let's take that at mm, oh man i don't know quarter note equals 30 oh, <laughs> they're like there. funeral um no no but... we're not supposed to die before the end of the second movement <laughs> it's not that kind of funeral um but... <laughs> Oh, it's, and then also the what's also unique about the Aroka is that the third movement requires three horns. Yeah. Which didn't happen until I would think that was also one of the first times that three horns were used in a symphonic setting. And it's we're on to scherzo just, now. And this is and this is this, one of those um and oh god, that was a piece of work. That's good, it's yeah. Really tough because it's so easy to get it's just it is just all over the place. Yeah. Um but it really, it's, it's a fantastic symphony. Mm-hmm. Eroica, it's, it's really when people, and a lot of music historians, there's a camp that like to, that's, that of the ones that actually use those periods of eras mm-hmm. and whatever, mm-hmm. some of them say that the premiere of Eroica was the start of the Romantic era. Yeah, and I think that's the most common, like, None of this, none of this death of Beethoven BS. It's, I like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, like it's 
There, I think it's the most logical and the com most common one. If I were to prescribe to the era system, which I do not, <laughs> I would say that is one of the more acceptable eras, era lines, sure. Caleb's having a push-up glasses. Well, actually, Marvin. I was, <laughs> for the record, not pushing up my glasses, but it's, that's fair. It's a fair characterization of my statement. But, um, it <laughs> Well... For, I think that Eroica, it's, it is so different from two, because two is also of that, like, trying to be more like Haydn sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, that it really, like, this, the percussion, the, the sportando is all the, the intensity of it, really, the further harmonic journey you take in developments yeah it, it it really it shows like we ain't in kansas anymore like. yeah and he also really stuck to the to the eroica theme of it right. from start to finish yeah it's oh and then well beethoven i think it's one of the he is the thing that sets him apart because this is something that i like to think about and i tend to i, I almost laugh about because do we like beethoven melodies like, like generally, is Beethoven known? I would say, is he known for writing like gorgeous melodies? I would say no. No. Is he known for like really lush harmonies? I wouldn't say really. No. I would say generally interesting harmonic shifts, but not like not like Brahms and like Brahms or nothing. Like I'd say yeah. that there are things that even before that before like, this that, is a Romeo and Juliet. Ex ex yeah. Exactly. It's like it's not like what is it? Beethoven that is so renowned. Yeah. And it's not, it's, I mean, like, like, come on, the Ode to Joy is a beer tune. Like, sorry <laughs> yeah. to all you Ode to Joy. Honestly, Ode to Joy slaps. It's like, like it's got, you know, he uses folk music, he uses all this. Yeah. But the thing about Beethoven that I think is so much more interesting than any other composer is the way that he can take literally a one motif and stretch it to eternity. And it and Eroica does that, even you know, one does that, but I think five. But that's a good transition to five. Because five Here we go, does friends. that. If anybody is has like looked at five before, it's one of these fantastic things to think about that five you can argue very, very reasonably the entire fifth symphony is four notes. Well, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's literally, uh, and the way you feel about three is the way I feel about five, because the premiere of five is nuts, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Well, also five has interesting historical context going into the future, which you can, I'll handle that, you yes. do, yeah. But so, well, five, there's another, it's a great book called The First Four Notes that talks about, like, literally just the opening of five and all of its historical connotations and, yeah. the, way, and like, the way that we've contextualized it in, like, a century and a half beyond, um, and it... It originally really shook people because it was also just like so different. Shook yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Berlioz's teacher, he, there's a correspondence that Berlioz's teacher was like, No, you know not to write like that. And Berlioz went, Hold my beer. Also, yay, we've actually mentioned we Berlioz. Mentioned Berlioz yes, we did it. Um, Hector will be proud of us. Oh, but, yay. <laughs> but. Five, it opens with those very famous da 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 da. Which, yeah, for those of you who are listening that are which not classical also, music fans. Also, should we get a 
Dodger Stadium representative listening to this podcast, I'm just gonna make a small I'm aside. Leaving. Okay? <laughs> I'm leaving. I, I, no, no, no. I have to say this. It's for the, it's for the good of the people. They need to know. Someone needs to get the word to the Dodger Stadium officials in Los Angeles because they have somehow perpetuated the misunderstanding that Beethoven's Fifth starts with a triplet, and that makes me really upset because. Anytime anybody gets struck out by a home by a Dodger pitcher in Dodger Stadium, it goes da 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 da, and I I it literally gives me pain. I get physical. For those of you who don't know, I am an extremely extremely devoted baseball fan, and I specifically Dodgers. <laughs> well, if you couldn't, if you couldn't tell. tell, I am from LA, and so I like the Dodgers. Go Dodgers! Um, this is and the Dodgers plug. It's not. It's not. But. It's one of these things where it's where Beethoven's Fifth is so pervasive in our culture yeah. that it is so pervasively wrong in our culture <laughs> that any time a batter of the away team gets struck out in Dodger Stadium, <laughs> tripling fifty thousand people hear it wrong, and it makes me really upset because it's not da 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 da, it's rest da 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 da. da, da, da. da. It's three eighth notes. Tell all your friends you'll make lots of parties and friends at those parties. It's so, it's just, I don't know how it happened. But. Um, so, um, it, anyway, back to Beethoven's So, well, it's, we never left. It, start, it starts. Oh my with, god. And this is also something that's so fascinating about Five. And I hypothet- hypothesized this last year to my, when I was studying it. Um, at length, and I said to myself, and I said to my, my in a lesson with uh, Professor Curtis, I said, is this symphony the first one to start with written silence? Oh, wow. Right? Isn't that a thought? It starts with a notated eighth rest, and yeah. three eighth notes, and then uh-huh. another, da- another bar line, and then you have the held half note. And my question, I hypothesized, I said, is that the first time that a conductor did a gesture up and down, and nothing came out at the start of the symphony. Oh, wow. And so, my, my lesson, uh, Dan Curtis was like, you should investigate this. And so I was like, I think I will. Yeah. So I went, and I went, and I pulled up an album of every Haydn symphony ever, and I listened to the first couple seconds of each one, and then I did all the Mozart symphonies, and then I did all the... J.C. box symphonies and all of the Clementi CPEs symphonies and, and CPEs and, yeah. Cle- and, and uh, Salieri symphonies yeah. and, oh, like, <laughs> and Rossetti symphonies yeah. and like as many composers as I could think of who came before Beethoven. Yeah. Not a single one. Not a single one started with a notated rest. Well, Sometimes there would be orange. a pickup. A pickup. Ba-ba. But that's a downbeat. It goes. Yeah. It, there's no silence before. It's all it's ba-ba. Not- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> For uh, those of you. <laughs> Emma just raised her arm and put it back down, which I guess is kind of hard to illustrate through yeah. audible noise. But yeah. it's true. Exactly. That's kind of the thing that's so amazing about it is that it starts with silence. Mm-hmm. It's not ba da da da. There's no pickup, <laughs> damn it. It's not a pickup triplet. It's ba 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 ba. It's mm-hmm. that silence that is so fantastic. And Another part, another corollary, I would say, of my hypothesis mm. is that perhaps, well, there are many theories that it, Beethoven was using a bird call 
Um, I think it's like Yellow Finch Bird Call, which actually is sound. It's like da 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 da. It's like short, 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 okay. short, long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, okay, maybe. Okay. I like to think that Beethoven was making a statement about his impending and ongoing deafness. Well, it's the fate. Motif. Well, that didn't. He didn't name it that. Though. No. Is his old um, secretary did? I think. Yeah. Um, but he never had that in mind. No. What I think, but what, what I think he was could have maybe intended is having that human, having a conductor stand in front of an orchestra and make this huge gesture and go down and nothing happen. Yeah. And that is what Beethoven would always be experiencing, all the time, anyways. Absolutely. And I feel like it's something this jarring feeling that he maybe wanted to elicit out of an audience. Huh. So that is. My general theory about why Beethoven, how the Beethoven. But also, Beethoven at the same time was like. (laughs) (laughs) on a piano for like a variation theme, you know? Like. So. So, It could go either way. Exactly. And it's it's one of those things that's like, for the the variation, theme of variations, like he was a master and he could do that for days. And even, but even with the the three note, the four note theme in Beethoven's Five, he could do that for days and he's just. He would just develop it in all three. It develops it in all three movements of Beethoven Five. You can find this four note motif everywhere, and it is in all four movements. It's in the entire symphony. It's the entire piece. It's like just those four notes, and it's ridiculous. Mm. But it's something that just goes to show that he can use it. Like his skills as as an improviser at the piano. Which oh, I'm gonna make. A, we're gonna make a small sidetrack here because I have to drop. Mm-hmm. The stories about Beethoven and the piano duels, <gasps> when he was a pianist and was not deaf. Drop I don't know if we've floor. talked about this before. So, for the listeners, this is a small aside, but it's worth it. Trust me. Stick with me. In the 1790s and 1800s, there was this culture in like the growing salon enlightenment culture world. Mm-hmm. There was this weird thing that was basically like a showdown, like a playoff. Yeah. Except there wasn't a duel, there were no weapons. It was a rap it was battle. Literally, it was like a rap battle. It, it was, was like a rap, rap battle. battle. Where they would be, they would be like two, like, two pianists would get together, and I challenge you to a piano, to a, to a match, yeah. to see who is the superior pianist. Yeah. And there were like, there were etiqueted rules. It was like, like let's get ready to rumble! <laughs> like, advertised events, there was one with lists that was, yeah. all, was like, very, very well publicized. Yes. And there's like a bunch of these, Mozart and Clementi had one. And, oh, yeah. And well, my favorite, one of my other favorites is the one that, one of them that Bach had with this guy from France who thought that he was better than Bach, and that's a whole And Bach was like, well, that's funny. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. But the ones that Beethoven yeah. are always hilarious because these people would be like, ah, oh, Beethoven's a nobody. I'm better than Beethoven. <laughs> and Beethoven was like, okay. And then they <laughs> and would... he's like, yeah, that's probably true, man. And so they would get together in some upper-class salon with a whole crowd of folks, and the first round, they would always play one of their, play one of their pieces, play a piece, and like, doesn't matter. Sometimes, sure, the guy's probably a very excellent pianist, and they would be fine. They'd be call it a draw or whatever. And then the next round... You were supposed to give your opponent a theme and then improvise on the theme, mm-hmm. which Beethoven would always wipe the floor oh, with yes. anyone who challenged him because yeah. he was so good. Mm-hmm. And then the third round would be sight reading. 
Uh-huh. So, Beethoven, there was this one instance, I'm blanking on the, on the opponent's name, and it doesn't really matter, because he, again, earned his place in history as losing to Beethoven in the piano duel. <laughs> but he gave... Hey, it's Beethoven, Beethoven gave him, like, one of his newest sonatas. And the guy actually read it. He read it very well, and everybody was like, Oh, damn! What's he gonna do? Exactly. And then this guy sort of wrote the rules, but legend has it gave Beethoven a cello sonata for cello and piano. And Beethoven was like, you know what? Fine. <laughs> and not only read it, turned the entire score upside down and read the cello part and the piano part backwards. Like, that is... That's some Princess Bride stuff. It is some <laughs> Princess Bride <laughs> stuff. Like... So, so to think that it's not within the realm of impossibility to think about how well he would, to, to segue back into five, could take one small idea and just just make magic in, yeah. all, in four different movements. And it become possibly the most famous piece of classical music. Yeah, I would yeah. say, and yeah, one of, the, one of the reasons why, and it's definitely not, not remembered now, and one of the reasons why it became so ubiquitous was because of World War Two. Yes, which yes. is the, yeah. So many, many years later, World War Two, <laughs> um, when they were inventing Morse code and they're working on that, they actually ended up making the symbol for the for V, the short, 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 long. Yeah. Um. So BBC Radio actually would play. Like would stream to Europe. Yeah. The sim, the, the just the first movement, sometimes the full symphony of the fifth, to signify victory, and it became known uh, as like this victory symphony. Because I always, I also heard that like when they would announce updates of the war, mm-hmm. they would start it with like a da 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 da. Yeah. Like, it's the BBC. Yeah. Um, but like <laughs> it was to signify that they had, like something had gone, had yeah. gone well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through that, like really frequent use of that. It sort of re- it permeated our culture to a point that it is just yeah. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, like at Dodger Stadium, incorrectly. <laughs> Not to bring that up again, but I'm going to bring it up again. <laughs> but the thing about Five that I just... Oh, man. It's the premiere of Five, as I stated earlier. Oh, my gosh. You know, I love this story. This, it is... Oh, what a, what, a, what a dumpster fire. Oh, what this, a night. So, it, the premiere of the Fifth Symphony... This all-famous, ubiquitous Which piece. was like 1808. 1808. It was December 22nd, yeah. 1808. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and, um... Oh, is that one Christmas? Night? No! <laughs> um, well, so, he gave this concert. He was he was commissioned to give this concert of all Beethoven's music, and which, you know, it was, so it was a contemporary music concert, which was fun to think about. Yeah! Um, and he was like, oh, I know. If I've got this concert, I might as well put... As much music as I possibly can yeah. on this one concert. It was I'm so talking hard. like full length Gone with the Wind length. <laughs> yes. Like you could do at least one of the extended edition Lord of the Rings. I was about to say it's like the trilogy. Yeah. You could it. It was at least four or five hours long. <laughs> that shit was a Wagner opera. It was so long. That there are like there are many different correspondences from the people who were at that concert, the many different nobles or high, you know, high, yeah. upper class of people who had these recorded letters from when they went to that concert. They were like, "Damn, that concert was so long." <laughs> it was so long. I remember like researching it at 
while ago, and then like it listed every single piece so, that was on this. So you listener might be wondering what was on this extremely lengthy concert. You might ask. Well, you might think can't be that long. Well, let me tell you. He put on the fourth piano concerto. Mm-hmm. Excerpts from the ma- his mass or Misa Solemnis. Yeah, Solemnis. Mm-hmm. Uh, excerpts from Misa Solemnis. Um, the fifth symphony. Uh huh. The sixth, sixth symphony. symphony. That's right. <laughs> we'll get back to that one in another and episode. <laughs> he wrote a piece to combine aspects of the Misa Solemnis, the. No, I'm sorry. It was the mass, and it was his mass. Mises Lundis came later in the 1820s. Oh, it did. It did. Yeah. It was his. It was excerpts from his mass, mm-hmm. um, and it was yeah the piano concerto five and six, and to combine aspects of symphonic repertoire, choral singers, and um, the piano, he wrote the choral fantasy. Yeah. For that, just that concert. Also, he had a brand new aria that he premiered during that, the Allo Perfida. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so to top this whole concert off, he's like, oh, I know, I'll write something else to finish <laughs> the concert because it's not long enough as yeah. it is. And he worked so hard in putting this concert together that he forgot to write the piano part for the Choral Fantasy. Yep. So he improvised it on the day of the concert. Oh, man. In our, in our vein of well-known composers being... Chronic procrastinators. Yeah. Or just not having the time. Beethoven didn't write the piano part, so he yeah. didn't, it was improvised the day of the show. Um, so this concert was so damn long, and it was at the Theater an der Wien. Yeah, it was. Which was opened mm-hmm. after the Magic Flute. Yep. Which we, you know, as a segue from last week. Oh, how lovely! Um, and it was just one of these things that just. Is, is very perplexing to think about nowadays. And in the context of uh, the audiences in the, in the early 1800s and late 1700s, mm-hmm. like, they were used to long concerts. Sure. Like, they were used to them. This was a different kind but of long, this was though. so long that it was really long for them. Like, but also, like, apparently the auditorium was so cold, too. Like, oh, I, <laughs> I, like, read something about it. So the auditorium was, like, extremely cold. <laughs> Well, it was December in (laughs) Vienna. Yeah, it's December 22nd in Vienna in this new auditorium. The audience is freezing their asses off for like five hours. (laughs) But also, another fun fact about this is that the orchestra didn't play that well. Oh, no. In the performance. Because they had one rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) They had one rehearsal before. And also, like, at one point, apparently, like, in the choral fantasy, like, there was a big mistake, so Beethoven stopped and started again. Oh, right. <laughs> well, this is... I also think about this, too. When we think about... We we almost... We, we deify, we idealize yeah. these great masterworks and how they're perfect yeah. and how they're just played to no end nowadays by symphonies everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they have, they have to be done perfectly and they're done. Yeah. They have to be... Exactly as the composer intended, and like, I don't know. I like, about. I'm sorry, it's not a tour, it's cold. Mappy, <laughs> let me turn over. Exactly. And like, well, like for the premiere of Heroica, too, it's like, people were like, yeah, their orchestra didn't do great because they were like reading and like a second, it was like the second time they had seen the music because yes. they were furiously writing all the parts. Yeah. Like, 
And because it, it was contemporary music, with music, we think about the, the way that contemporary music is treated nowadays. Yeah. And it's like that, and that was Beethoven then. Uh-huh. And it's just so weird to think about that they had <laughs> never seen this music before. And they were like, okay. <laughs> they're like, let's play this while we're freezing for five hours. Like, I'm like, I play Haydn symphonies. I guess I can play Beethoven symphonies. And they were wrong. <laughs> yeah. Because it is a different beast. They like got the sheet music and they're like, oh no. <laughs> and Beethoven Five, as some people out there will know, does not end. <laughs> it really and it, does. Beethoven Five is also really one of the other end. things that it like just totally breaks the convention of is the fact that it goes from beginning. It really it arcs towards the end instead of mostly like a relica, the first movement being really long. And then the second, third, and fourth movement being medium length, but like mm. the it it the real like what you know like the first movement that's the big one. Oh yeah. But in five, although the first movement might be the most well known, the fourth movement is actually much longer, especially if you take the repeats. Yes. And it really arches towards the fourth movement because you add for the first time trombones and symphonies and piccolo mm-hmm. and contrabassoon. Yes. Which. At the time, probably did not sound like the contrabassoons we have today. No, but not, not quite. Um, it, it's one of those things that it it just all of a sudden for you had you spend three movements in a regular classical sized orchestra generally, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you've got like you got trombones, and you've got a piccolo, <laughs> and it's just and things just it you had this There's suddenly no hiding man, yeah. romantic orchestra. Yeah, you've got so much more of a romantic orchestra. Yeah. Um, and there are, oh, there's so many ins and outs of five that are just, that are really, really fascinating. Like in the, in the first movement, there's, for shout out to all the bassoonists out there, um, that the, um, we know we've got a big bassoon crowd. The horn solo in Beethoven, the first movement. Yes. After the very famous intro and and then the the B theme is introduced by, by the horns in spectacular fashion. And it's one of my favorite moments of the Peter Shickley take on Beethoven Five, oh. um, which I highly recommend watching. It's when he makes it into a sport, um, and they put they perform Beethoven Five, but he's like a baseball announcer or like a football announcer, and so it's 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 chaos. It's fantastic. Everybody go see it. Um, but <laughs> that was played by the horns the first time, but then the second time it's played by the bassoon by the huh? bassoons because at that time. Beethoven couldn't have the horns play that because they had natural horns, so they could only play so many notes. Yes. He was like, ah, well, let the bassoons do it. So then there's this really interesting dilemma. It's like, as conductors, would you... Did Beethoven, do you think that if he had the tools at disposal, would Beethoven have given that those notes yeah. to the horns? Mm-hmm. Would he... And now are, that we have technology. Now, now that we have, we have technology. <laughs> the future is not. Can we give the horns those notes to which the bassoonists now all yell into their screens? No. Yeah. Um, there's no, I don't Exactly. And that's one of those things where are we are like what you know, you have that yeah. choice. I don't necessarily agree with it to make that to, to change that. Sure. But so there are conductors who do that and it's this thing that Beethoven still continually causes us gives us lots of questions even today. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I yeah, five oh five is good. The, we're moving to my favorite, though. Okay, yes, we got it now. And and every orchestra's favorite. And every orchestra's Jesus. favorite. So, like, 
Caleb and I were talking about this a few days ago when we were talking about what we were going to discuss in this week's episode. Um, and we were right. saying that we were like, oh, God, orchestras play seven all the time. And it's, like, known as this this piece that gets programmed every other week. And, like, everyone plays seven. And why does everyone play seven? But also at the same time, Caleb and I are like, but we really like seven. We're, <laughs> we're part of the problem. And it's, so, it's so true. Like, so. if we were asked, hey, would you like to conduct Beethoven seven or not at all? We know which one we It's like, pick. or would you, you know, it's like, would you want to conduct Beethoven 7? And like, if you're asked if you want to, you're like, yeah, you're like, conduct. yeah, so I'm what we're saying, Beethoven you're seven. absolutely right. We're part of the we're problem. We're part of the problem. We're part of the problem, but at least we know we're part of the problem. Yeah, we're self-aware. Unlike some symphony orchestras out there, <clears throat> we'll not name names, <laughs> they know who they are. Oh my gosh. Who are just... Where they're like, come see our, our new and improved program, we're opening with a Mozart Overture, and then we've got a, a Bruckner, and then we've got a Beethoven 7. Like, right, it's like, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, so, it, it's so over-programmed, but it is also, like, kind of a favorite symphony. But it's like Beethoven 7, like, hecky it, slaps. It's, it's very like much the best. I A lot of people consider it the best one. It, it's even by music critics at, at the time. They all loved it. They, they, they thought that it was his best one. Well, it holds my heart because it's, um, I was blown away at one performance of it. Yeah. Like, I, when I was in Lennox, Massachusetts for Tanglewood, um, I remember seeing this concert, um, at the, like, the Crucifixi Shed, you know, like, that, like, massive outdoor auditorium, oh, the yeah. amphitheater. And the program was like, um, I may be getting this wrong, but it was somewhere along the lines of, like, WC, Prelude, Afternoon, Nephron, um, Ives' Unanswered Question, Ooh. and then, like... And the Beethoven 7. 7. Oh, that's a good program. It was very nice. Ooh. It was very nice. nice. Um, and I just remember, like, sitting, like, in a field, listening to Beethoven 7, and just being, like... And, of course, like, you know, BSO playing it. Just being, like, no ah, yeah. Anders Nelson's conducting, like, oh. yeah... No, shooketh. Yeah. Beyond belief. Like, mm-hmm. it was amazing. But, um, yeah, seven. Seven? Seven is my... 1813, right? I believe so, yes. And it was premiered in 14, I think. I think um, it's premiered in 1813. Like, late. Like, well, December 8th. Oh, yes, that's right. And yeah. it was premiered for veterans and wounded soldiers from the Napoleonic War. It was, yeah. Which a lot of people don't think about. And yeah. And so it's one of the things that I love pushes, pushes up glasses, but it's... There's so many pieces from that period of Haydn and all the composers that they're in this context of madness that's going on in the world. Napoleon's going around Europe and just terrorizing everything. And so, I mean, Haydn mass on time of war is, it's like 1797, it's like to rev up troops. It's like, it was like their USO concert before going off to fight Napoleon in Europe. Like that, and it's a great mass, super underrated, but like the Nelson mass, you got the mm-hmm. Wellington's Victory by mm-hmm. Beethoven, which, you know, it's, there's all these pieces that, they're, it, it's all in the same historical backdrop, yeah. which is why kids, <laughs> music history is really important. It is. And it's important for good performances because you can get a better understanding context, of what... Context, context, context. Thank you. About what, about context, and then maybe like, what tempos you might want to take in those contexts. Yeah. Hint, hint, hint. Beethoven told you what to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, oh, Seven is, yeah, I, one of my dearest experiences that I had with Seven, well, this was actually with all of the symphonies, but I was a freshman in high school, 
and oh, I don't want to think about that too long. But <laughs> my best friend and I, Julian Kanahura, shout out to him if, he, if he's listening. We got together. We were uh, in orchestra, and we were encouraged by our teacher, Mr. Posha, to listen to. We were working on Beethoven eight, and he was like, you know, you should just familiarize yourself with you should familiarize yourself with all the Beethoven symphonies. And so and we were like, why on earth would I do that? So, well, so we were like, oh, I know what we'll do. Let's have a marathon. So we got, we got those from the first chorus that we got were all those Dover editions, and we just sat down, and we listened through all nine, back to front, took us seven hours. Ugh, I would listen to that. And I would do that a, party. It was a good time. That's a good we party. We had a lot of ice cream. But it was those, it was I know my seven. plans for this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it's seven. It just, it, it took that place in my heart from a really early place where, yeah. and it's, and it's hard to quite pin it down from a first listen about what it is about Seven. It's mm-hmm. just so great. Yeah. And honestly, Wagner was the one who said this. I have that quote. You have that quote. I'm sure you do. It's the, as you, go ahead. No, you go ahead. It was because he, he called Seven the apotheosis of dance. Yes. And because, again, like I said earlier, Beethoven just rips folk music constantly. And... Or, like, uses folk-like melody to his advantage mm. and to create these very rustic themes. And although Six also, and probably more notably, gets the name of being the pastoral symphony. Yes. Having that. I honestly think that Seven is more folky. I could see that. Than Six, because Six is more programmatic music, which I love. Yeah. And I talk about that again another time. But mm-hmm. seven, the thing about it, it's just it drives those fantastic dances, dance rhythms into your bones. Like Or even like the you just can't help you just can't help but it but it's just it all of it has this really rampant energy to it that's just and even and even, I would say, especially even in the second movement, that is one of the most famous classical pieces ever. Ah, I love it. That doesn't have to be a damn dirge. No. To use some alliteration for today. Um, it, so many recordings of it are so slow. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it doesn't have the same, it doesn't fit it doesn't the character have the drive. of an apotheosis of dance. Yeah. And it's, if you take that young, it doesn't have to be this like in almost four eights. It's so painfully slow. We're like, hi, this isn't the funeral march. Exactly. And some people like might think of it that way. It's but it has it. There's there's more to it than that, especially when you think about like oh this is being played for, you know, people who are just fighting in a war, mm-hmm. and yes there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion to it, yeah. But, it's, but it doesn't it doesn't have to be as slow as you need. Yeah. So if I may go back to the first Please. movement, I actually found something very interesting about it. Oh yes. So there's like a claim that famous famous composer of uh, Viennese Carl Maria von Weber oh. considered the like chromatic baseline in the coda of the first movement, Kamaliya <laughs> von Weber said that it was, quote, ripe for the madhouse. Oh, I remember this. 
only came from the author of Beethoven's like first biography, which Anton Schindler. Oh, yeah. Schindler, stretch the truth. Who a lot. apparently had a possessive adulation of like just like obsessive attacks on Weber. <laughs> like he just like he wasn't a fan. Hammered on him. He was just Jeez. like, I'm gonna ruin Weber's life <laughs> and say that he claimed that the first movement, the baseline of the coda was ripe for the madhouse. <laughs> which Yeah, it really honestly, stuck it to him, you know? Which honestly I'm ready to bring that phrase back. Like, let's bring that ripe phrase for the back. <laughs> that can be a subtitle for our podcast. Ripe, ripe for, for the, the madhouse. Mad oh, that's the title of our there it is. We found our episode title. Um <laughs> <laughs> The Odd Symphonies, right for the madhouse. Ooh. Me. Um <laughs> Well so it's it, Schindler. He's an interesting case too, because there's a lot of these anecdotal stories that are very, very much in doubt, because he wanted to sort of supplant, like cement his place in Beethoven's legacy. Yeah. By having all these accounts of what he, he was twisted like. the truth a lot, quite a bit. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and there, yeah. So there, are, anything that you hear from Schindler uh, can always be taken with a grain of salt. Yes. Um. But for I well so even in the in the third movement of seven which I recently did in the summer Yay! and have a, a really a new learned appreciation for um, because it is just dastardly fun might I say it's so fun it's really fun and a lot of times it gets neglected as the third movements tend to be but it takes um, the scherzo and it becomes like a scherzo it's well it's a double scherzo it yeah. happens twice which is just really fun because mm-hmm. um, Beethoven really wants to make sure you don't forget the tune. Um, <laughs> But, it, again, also, another thing, the trio and that, like, doesn't, it it's really should be taken much faster than a lot of times people take it. Um, and it's just, and there's a lot, there's, there's more variation and a lot of magic in, in it that you can see. It's a lot of times Beethoven wrote it in there for you. You don't have to guess around for it. Yeah. And that's one of the beautiful things about Beethoven, that he, you know, expanded this vocabulary of things. Just he, he got to more extremes, so he knew what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's... One of those things that I always contend to people when they complain, we're like, oh, why are we taking so fast? I'm like, well, he told us what he wanted. Yeah. It's one of those things that, and especially even with the um, the fourth movement, too. Like, it burns, it goes. It is a oh, she's fire folk dance. Yeah. And again, also one of those ones that just kind of go, it goes on forever. <laughs> um, not as bad as five. Five is probably or the nine. worst of the offender. That's true. <laughs> nine's, or, or a, eight. nine's a whole um, other story, though. Yeah, again. nine is a whole, it's a whole episode. Um, but it's, um, seven, it, it it really has a lot of that magic that it just... Seven's got a special place in my heart. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. understandably so. I, um, I definitely agree. It's, it's one of those ones that you really just, you want to do it someday, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's like your first Beethoven 7. It's like getting a yeah. drink for the first time. It's like, wow. Like, it's my first Beethoven 7. It's like, <laughs> Aww. Because it's, I don't know, it's like almost a rite of passage to do your, I think so, your Beethoven yeah. symphonies. And, and of all the symphonies, 7 you know, the most performed, I would say. Yes. Um, yeah, I think so. I, I would make that claim. Either that or five. Yeah. But five, you have to pay trombones and a piccolo player. And a contribution. <laughs> That's so true. Which honestly is one of those reasons why it doesn't get done as often. Yeah. Because you actually have to pay more people. Yeah. Um, where in seven, you don't have that same orchestration. Um, unlike where in nine, it's like, oh, come on. And yeah. <laughs> and yeah like, nine is just like, choir. nine is just like, we don't have the budget for nine exactly. this season. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
what's heaven it's like this weird it's this perfect balance of Beethoven and it's like middle romantic period that's just just dishing out these classics yeah and it's just he was giving it all to us yeah 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 um but it's one it's one of those things that it, it put the even the odd number symphonies in this sort of in really unfortunately like upper tier of symphonies yeah because two four six and eight really get sort of uh, hidden under the shadows of yeah. the bigger of those uh-huh. I, I I really have a soft spot for eight especially well I would say that and we'll get into this in our evens episode I think six and eight are six really, and eight, really 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 great, great. Really yeah, wonderful. I think six pushes a lot of boundaries that mm-hmm. people don't, and people for some people for some reason a lot of people rag on six. I don't really know why. Oh, I think it's wonderful. Um, but I think that the reason why there's, there's so there's so many things in that that you can find in it, um, but the where I think he sometimes sets a lot of precedence in these odd symphonies, mm-hmm. where like Aroka, he has this incredibly long first one. Yes. Five, he starts it with a west. Uh-huh. And it's just things like that where he like adds trombones, like these things that he doesn't you know in the in the first symphony starts it with not a one chord. Yeah. Which again also I I also hypothesize, like, I wonder if that was the first symphony in symphony form of things to start first yeah. movement to uh-huh. not start with a one chord. Yeah. Questions to ask. If anybody wants to, to look that up or to try and figure that out, or there, we'll update we'll you in the Evans episode. Yeah, yeah, actually. We'll hopefully just um, be able to dig into Evans just as much. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all for tuning in. Yeah, be sure to follow us on Facebook. Yes, follow us on Facebook. We are. Symphony Podcasty. We are also on Spotify. We are so now. We are on Spotify. You can listen to us on Spotify. Yeah. And uh, follow us and be sure to stay tuned for updates. Uh, we have a couple new episodes coming your way pretty soon yes um yeah but enjoy your week yeah so long thanks for listening